Welcome to episode 15 of Developer Milosh, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Milosh brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter. We are at devmelange, that's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about the show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all your feedback. And now here are your hosts. My name is David Leitner. I'm an enthusiastic software engineer working in different fields of software engineering. I'm Peter Kovler, the code cop. Obviously, I like my code to be very clean. We have the pleasure today to talk to Thomas Eitzinger. I know Thomas already since a couple of years. We even tended to live together in Vienna when we were studying informatics there. Last year, I think last year, right, Thomas? You decided to go to Sydney, Australia, yeah. to follow a company, which I still don't know exactly what they are doing. They are doing something about blockchain and Rust, <laughs> but you will explain this to us. Um, and to work there as a research engineer, right? Yeah, <clears throat> so that, so that's true, feel, yeah. Feel free to, to, to introduce yourself. I'm quite sure you can do it better than I could. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, my name is Thomas. Um, I, actually, I would like to call myself, like in general, a full-stack developer, but that term kind of got overloaded by people who <laughs> just use JavaScript for everything. Ah, um, so, come on there. <laughs> so, so, I settled, so I settled for the term generalist. Um, because I always have a, I always had a big interest in just looking into all different kinds of technologies, um, and just get a broad view about what software engineering, um, like what all different technologies do. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, like last year, I started to work for a blockchain research lab in Sydney, and um, that were again two new technologies I haven't touched before, which is uh, blockchain and Rust, because we're using Rust to build a so-called uh, layer two system. And uh, I guess in the discussions, we will figure out what that term actually means and um, yeah, how this all relates together. So what is Rust? Never heard about it. Really? You never no, heard about no, it? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, what is Rust? Well, why, do you, why do you actually use Rust? Um, so Rust, in, in short, is a systems programming language. It was developed by Mozilla because they got uh, fed up with the way C++ works, and they wanted a better language to improve Firefox. Um, and so they created a team, and that team developed the Rust programming language. And um, <clears throat> it turns out that the needs that Mozilla had, which is a language that is um, safe, but also performant and modern, was a need that many different companies had. And so Rust, for example, has been the most loved language the second time already on the Stack Overflow survey. It, it's a pretty good language. I really like it. And so one of the things that I really appreciate about it is it has a very strong type system. And so <clears throat> that, among other things, enables you to kind of chokingly take the phrase, it compiles, let's ship it pretty literally. Because once you actually get your code to compile, there is already so many things ruled out that can go wrong that when you start working with it, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So that's basically something that people using Haskell say. So is it really that strong? Um, Rust is actually very influenced by Haskell, yeah, at least the type system. So 
for example, you also have um, option types, you have uh, pattern matching, you have kind of monads. So it's like it's you don't really have the monads from um, from Haskell, but uh, it's it's got many aspects and it was very influenced the whole language. It has very a lot of functional aspects, for example, um, iterator pattern and all this kind of stuff. And so yeah, it, it is pretty strong. So I don't know how how do I how do I explain uh, what the good things about it are. Um, Here comes the question. Here comes the question. Everybody wants to know what is a monad. <laughs> okay, I should have not, I should have not mentioned this term because I would definitely get it wrong now. So um, the the way I always explain it to myself is like a monad is a a container type that allows you to um, like express functionality that you want to execute without specifically caring about what the underlying thing is. So like an option type is a kind of monad because you can say, I want to map this thing and I give you the function, I want to map it and I don't care if it's um, like present or absent. And so I don't have to deal with this condition of if is it absent or is it, is it present? I can just express the functionality and the monad is taking care of doing the right thing in the right situation. I, I do know what's, what's, most, what's most horrible about that, uh, that I didn't get that explanation because my dog was barking because the cat was doing something. So the, you said a pretty reasonable explanation and I didn't hear it. Well, actually, that, he said it's an optional, right? <laughs> well, I, I can always <laughs> listen to the podcast later to get that. But that's uh, like... Uh, Let's mention that. So that's maybe the joy of having a remote experiment. Uh, yeah. Till now, we did everything face to face in the <clears throat> Vienna coffee uh, place. But uh, this time, we wanted to try something more technical. Right, David? Yeah, well, it's it's we are only two people also. Uh, well, with our guests three, but, but from the developer Milos crew, we are only two here. Yeah, I mean, summer holidays usually usually hard to get everything around the table. And we didn't want to miss the opportunity actually to 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 have Thomas here on the line, so that's why we decided to to give remote a shot. I would say it's actually pretty ironic because um, like I wouldn't have to sit in Austria to participate, right? So, um, yeah, that's, that's... so <laughs> well, it wasn't planned, right? To do it, yeah, it wasn't planned. That was true. Yeah, but yeah. I would say it's good that you are at the same country; otherwise, you would have a horrible lag. Because yeah, we probably. still have a lag when we uh, do something remote, like I did a lot with Sweden, and uh, the lag was it wasn't horrible, but it was noticeable. So let's go back to Rust. So you said it's uh, it's uh, really safe. It's almost like Haskell using types. So what would be another attribute uh, you would describe it? So why is it appealing? The language design in many ways uh, is uh, very consistent. So even though uh, some of the features that Rust has to have quite a learning curve. Once you got into the language, it's it's scaringly consistent. That's that's how it's, that's how I joke with my um, colleagues about it because it's like you discover something new and like oh I didn't know this also worked, um, but well actually it makes sense that I can do this if I can use the other feature, um, and uh, so. And one of the things that's also really powerful and actually a pretty novel idea that I haven't seen in any other programming language before is um, that Rust is a memory-safe language. So there is no manual memory management. But at the same time, there's also no virtual machine. Um, and that's something I haven't seen before. 
And the way the way Rust achieves that is it has the so-called ownership system, which means if you declare um, a variable, then there has there always has to be exactly one scope that owns the memory for this for this variable. So whenever you pass it around, you have to be explicit about do I pass a reference or do I move the memory into in, into the into the other function? And if you pass a reference, Rust uh, checks at compile time that the so-called lifetime of the variable doesn't um, um, is is long enough. So like you can imagine like a, a scope declaring a variable at the very top. And as soon as the scope ends, the variable is automatically dropped, which is, and it's, this means it's the destructor of the type is called, which in most cases just frees the memory, but you could implement custom behavior. And um, so within that uh, scope, you can call other functions and pass a reference to it. But if you pass a reference, then um, the function has to return before you exit the before you exit the scope. So for example, you cannot just spawn a thread and pass in a reference of a local variable because you, you don't know if the other friend, if the other thread um, exits first, right? So in this case, you have to move the memory into the thread because the, the other thread is now the owner of the memory piece. And with that feature, Rust is actually able to guarantee you that there is no, um, that there is no memory leaks at compile time and also no double freeze and all those kind of problems that you get in um, C++ or C programs. But how can you share state between threads then? Um, there is data structures for um, reference counted pointers and atomically mm -hmm. reference counted pointers. Mm -hmm. um, and you can use that to create a second pointer to it. Um, and that's, for example, a very good um, uh, use case for the for the custom drop implementation because the drop implementation of a um, a reference counted pointer will just decrease the reference count and once it hits zero it will free the memory. Mm -hmm. This is actually how how Objective um, C did it, right? As far as I remember. Mm -hmm. Well, the memory counting is uh, part of garbage collection, right? So that and yeah. like the number of re the reference count. So, but um, I didn't understand everything you said. So, but it, because it's not garbage collecting, right? It's more. Yeah. It's more <laughs> like uh, almost all data structure is allocated on the stack. It sounds like it is not because you said there is a allocate and a free, but it's yeah. bound to the stack, right? Because it's bound to the scope, so it's bound to the stack. Yes. So, so what the yeah. compiler will do is Rust C. The compiler uses LLVM under the hood to actually um, emit the machine code, right? Um, and so the underlying machine code probably looks very similar to a C or C++ program that you write, except that you didn't have to write the free implementation for uh, the, the free call to the memory because Rust inferred where like a variable was used the last time and we'll just free it afterwards, right? So like you have a scope and you, um, you uh, allocate a new vector, which is a dynamically allocatable um, list in Rust. And as soon as the scope ends that owns the memory, um, the Rust compiler will insert the call to the free method to, to free the memory. So when you compile it to bytecode or when you look at the produced assembly code, then you will see that there's a call to free there like you would have done it in C++, except that you didn't have to do it manually. It's, um, it's kind of similar. So the whole concept is kind of similar to this pattern in in C++ um, 
that's called like RAII or something um, that you use to track the, like when you uh, open a file and it should be closed at the end of the scope because you implement something in the destructor that closes the file again. I think it's called RAII. Resource acquisition is initialization. Yeah. Did that help? Yeah, that helps because it's like it's more an, uh, a static thing. It's neither bound to. Uh, it's just creating a proper code. You would have to think about, so you do not have to think about, because it can be inferred when it is, and if it cannot infer, then it doesn't allow this uh, this type of code, right? Exactly. So yeah. So then you have so... to copy stuff explicitly, so that both places have to track the memory, right? That's what you said. Like when you pass it to another thread, uh, you also pass ownership, or like then both have it because both have a copy or something like that, right? Yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, with not allowing the code to compile, so uh, there there is code that you as a human could reason about that this is correct and this doesn't have. Um, this doesn't have a memory leak, but the Rust compiler can't prove it, and so it doesn't mm -hmm. compile. For these kind of situations, um, you have uh, the keyword unsafe, and so because <laughs> all of this kind of stuff has to be done eventually, right? Uh... Um, and, and Rust has an unsafe block, and within that block, you can basically you can do things that would lead to memory corruption, and then you as the human have to guarantee that it's correct. And the the nice thing about that is that because it's you have to explicitly mark that part, it um it allows you to keep it local, right? You can declare in a function that only this piece is unsafe and the rest is fine. And whenever you whenever you use an unsafe block, you have to mark your function as unsafe, and then your caller has to use an unsafe block to call you and this kind of stuff. So so ah. how much how much of your code is in an unsafe block? Zero percent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I really like this unsafe. Isn't there also an unsafe in C sharp? Yeah, yeah. The beginning. It's in C sharp, there is an unsafe since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. And in Java, we have the uh, the Sun Misc unsafe, which is a hidden class that does all this kind of unsafe. But it was uh, discovered, and now it's a problem because when people need to migrate to Java nine, where they remove the unsafe, because it was never meant to be used, no framework works. Like no, <laughs> no, but nothing works because they were all using the unsafe for performance reasons. Right? So it's, uh, that's usually yeah. the, the, the thing why you, why you need it, right? Because you have like a performance reasons so doing something uh, crazy. Well, crazy. Uh, so I say, so it's like, uh, I like that. So the unsafe is kind of like purity in Haskell. And you said it's very strong with types. Is it also strong on immutability? Um, yes, so everything's immutable by default, and uh, you have to explicitly mark variables as mutable, and also only the owner, like only the scope that owns the variable is allowed to declare it as mutable, right? So if you only get a reference, you cannot just make the reference mutable, but you can request a mutable reference from your caller. So you can declare your function signature as, I would like to get past a mutable reference to this, to this variable. Um, and that's actually also an interesting part because Rust focuses very much on providing you a language that is uh, safe, but at the same time concurrent. And so um, they figure out in when when doing um, like research about language design that the only problem with concurrency really is shared mutable state, right? So if yeah. it's shared and mutable, then you can run into race conditions. Yeah. So what they 
what they saw is when they had the ownership system, they saw that actually we already know who owns the memory. So if we make mutability explicit, we can actually track how many mutable reference did we get to this variable and can just disallow getting two at the same time. So if you have a mutable variable and you call one function and pass it a mutable reference, this one has to exit before you can get a new mutable reference and pass it to another function. And um, that actually allows you to be very explicit about what you want to do with the data that you get from your caller. And you also can be sure that if you call a function and you only pass a reference to it, it's not going to modify it. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, that reminds me of Go. And I have to bring up Go because uh, Christian asked uh, like explicitly that we have to bring up Go. Uh, because yeah. Go also has uh, like uh, if you're a, a, a reading or a writing receiver, like if you want, uh, if you're just reading yeah. from the data structure, then uh, then you get the, the reference, or like then you get a copy or something. It doesn't matter. So it's the same. It makes a distinction, mm -hmm. which is yeah. probably a cool idea because it forces us to think about uh, if we actually want to change it or not from the API perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's like cool. Uh, because yeah. it's, now if you get the Java class, uh, like uh, you would have to look inside if it has any mutable method. So you wouldn't know on, on the outside, on the signature, if if the stuff that is passed in will be mutated or not, unless you know the types. But with these uh, mechanisms, like it's, uh, I can see already if this method is pure or not, or if it's like mm -hmm. changing other things. And that's that's cool. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you if you have any... Uh, opinion on that so what is uh, is there a rust versus go like uh discussion it seemed a bit like uh when we were yeah. uh, talking on the topic yeah so what's your take on that so on the on the team and, and that also um is what represents also my opinion we we don't really like go um oh yeah so we're, <laughs> we're i guess that the, the rust um Rust, was, Rust is just too good once you start working with it, I would say. Um, and also, like, the, the the lack of generics in Go is just something that I don't find very appealing. Um, so, yeah, there's that. And actually, one thing regarding the what you mentioned, that it's part of the type signature, I had a very funny um, moment, like, I guess, maybe nine or ten months in the project when I um, did some uh, Python for just personal purposes. And I was, I was messing with the script and I was looking at the function. I was like, how can I tell if the variable I pass in is like a reference and then if I mute, modify stuff, it bubbles up. I was like, how can I tell? How do I know? I was like, I was so spoiled by using Rust. I was like, I can immediately tell if I get past a copy or if I get past a mutable reference. It's like, ah, if I modify it, it will bubble up. That's what I want. Or no, I have to change the code so that I actually get a reference. Um, so that is actually... Um, once you get into it, it's like it's really, really nice. I was just reminded that, like in the beginning, from compiling, it was just checking types. Then they added, uh, like recent languages like uh, Kotlin or Swift, also added nullability to that. Mm -hmm. And now also other languages add mutability to the to the signature. So that's like mm -hmm. uh, adding more and more power to the compiler. That's really cool. Basically. So yeah. we, I guess we can, uh, some languages add uh, sharedness, things like this pony language. So if something is shared or not shared or like, um, because it's for actors, so that's also added to the to the declaration of, of the structure. 
It's pretty awesome. Uh, so you see, well, the, the languages yeah. get more and more opinionated, right? That's that's the point, actually. But is it opinionated, or is it just uh, we can look at more and more stuff because that's the advances of of science in languages, maybe, yeah. basically, maybe. right? Well, it's not enough. Fifty bytes are the same bytes like a C style, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. it needs to be yeah, right. bytes, and it needs to be nullable or not, and it's uh, of certain structures and maybe of certain areas in memory and. and uh, yeah, that's uh, I didn't think about that. It's actually cool. I'm wondering what's the next thing that compilers will uh, will also have there. Right? What's what's another dimension of of structure that that we could put into types? Good question. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, how how it will evolve, and um, it's um, quite a few people um, uh, mentioned that yeah, putting the Putting mutability and all this kind of stuff into the type next signatures and the ownership system is a huge step forward for the whole um, language design community. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's like the ownership is like who created it, right? So that's another yeah. meta information <clears throat> about uh, some type or data structure that the compiler can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's uh, so you say there is no uh, Rust versus Go discussion. Uh, Go is the is the clear loser, and we are not even talking about. It. <laughs> well, is it is it really that case? Is it really so comparable? I think this comparison was done a lot in the beginning, but especially Rust is is more or less a C plus plus substitution, where Go has not this intention, right? Go is the, I think they call themselves um, the the language for the cloud, right? I'm not sure. Christian would notice, but I, I'm not sure if they really want to compete or if just people think they are competing and they try to fulfill the same same use case. Mm, I'd say in, in a way they are competing because um, Go also really aims to give you concurrency primitives that make concurrency super easy and... Yeah, because um, you need it in the cloud, not because yeah. you want to be very near to the hardware, right? Yeah, true. But uh, have you have you come across the paper that uh, went viral on Twitter? I think like a month or two ago about the the problems in Go code where they analyzed um, like uh, race conditions and where they came from. And um, actually, because you, you still have like data structures for sharing mutable state, um, right? In in Go, and um, they actually found out that or that the conclusion was kind of the primitives that Go gives you didn't help very much in avoiding the problems it set out to solve in the beginning. So like there were still plenty of race conditions in the Kubernetes code, for example, um, or um, other big Go projects. I, for I forgot what the others were, um, but Kubernetes was one of them. Uh, sounds mm. like Java threads, right? When they created Java threads, we are super cool, but then it's horrible and it's very difficult to manage. So maybe the same problem of an early version of the language. So who is the designer of Rust? Who, who designed this? Um, well, the project is sponsored by Mozilla, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's actually also very interesting because the whole, it's very community driven. So okay. the whole the whole compiler is on, um, is the development is on GitHub and uh, everyone's free to join. There's like, there's very big mentoring going on um, for, for the for the project and everyone can just chim in and s propose changes to the language through RCs and then if they get accepted they just get implemented. 
Okay, so it's like most modern languages these days. It's very driven by RFCs in the community, and yeah. main. Okay, and and the, the, the chairman is Mozilla. One more question, maybe because we're actually quite good in time already. Um, when I read Rust, I usually read it in the context of web assemblies. And correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, but I think the main reason for this is because they have native support to compile Rust directly to web assemblies, right? Yes. Did you did you already did something in this area? Um, I I played around with it. Um, so the way it works is because Rust compiles to machine code. You have to set a target you want to compile for. Usually, it's your own one. It's your own machine's one, right? But you can also compile to any other target, and one of them is WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. um, and but um, it's natively supported by the compiler, right? That's interesting. Yes, it's supported. Do by you know compiler, why? Yeah. Because Mozilla is 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 putting so much hope into web assemblies or why why did they implement this for us that it's directly or natively supported um that's a good question actually i'm i'm not sure if it was um driven by mozilla to add the target right because it's like adding adding a target to the compiler is just um it's just like um making a pull request to to rust c and adding the configuration of how do you compile the code to this to this target and what is the what is the point the width of this target and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the rest is done because all the heavy lifting is done through LLVM because the the Rust compiler actually just creates the LLVM intermediate representation and then LLVM creates the assembly code. And so because LLVM can do WebAssembly, Rust-C can do WebAssembly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that means but like it, everything that can do LLVM can do WebAssembly. Yes. And, and, and I see more and more like languages also compiling to WebAssembly. Or you least, can write at least C prototypes, right? You can write C code and compile it to WebAssembly. <clears throat> yeah, I would love to do that. I guess. <laughs> well, I think yeah. that the WebAssembly um, code, the native code, is actually more or less C, right? If I remember correctly. Um, so it's, it's actually Wasm, right? It's, it's pretty similar to C as far as I, as I remember. I didn't take a look at this for a while, <laughs> but when I took a look at it, it was very C-like. Yeah, it 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 got it's got very limited operations, right? I think the only thing it can deal with is numbers, so you need to express everything as numbers, and um, that makes. Uh, functions I think this is ready. not true anymore. Didn't they improve this already? I well, think let's that not, they really. Let's not go yeah. crazy here. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> One 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 thing which could be very important for the listeners, uh, maybe what would you. What would you recommend if somebody is now so interested in Rust and, and wants to get a, a foot into the door? Which which resources do you know? Which which courses? What would you would you recommend? Meetups? Would you recommend um, just switching a job and then doing it for the hours a week? Well, what is your um, recommendation if you want to learn Rust? I guess the go-to starting point is the Rust book, which is also written by the community and maintained and. That one gives you uh, actually a pretty deep dive into all aspects of the language. It starts out with some examples um, and, and just teaches you all these concepts steps by step by step. So if you manage to go through the book, then you have very decent knowledge about how Rust works and should be able to, 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 to write it and solve problems with it if you type, if you do the examples along and not just read for them. Because to learn a language, you kind of really have to use it. So, but the Rust book is... Um, is, is a very good starting point for that. So it's this read the docs page, right? I, I just found it on um, the web, I think. Just it's, it's just called the Rust book, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, 
yeah rustlang.org slash stable yeah exactly okay cool i think then we're at the end of the rust right. discussion let's shortly jump jump to what we usually do at the end of our episodes let's talk a little bit about the community um usually we will talk about the community in Vienna. maybe we use the opportunity as we have a guy from sydney here and ask him what What's his favorite meetup in Sydney? Where do you usually go, Thomas? Um, yeah, so uh, the favorite, my favorite meetup is the Rust meetup. <laughs> oh, what a surprise! <laughs> surprise! Um, I said you also... regularly joining the Go meetup. <laughs> um, I was actually joining the Haskell um, slash um, um, FP uh, Functional Programming Sydney meetup um, twice, but um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really enjoy that one because the people were um yeah not that welcoming i would say um and but in general the the software developer community is not that great in sydney so really? i don't know if nah it's it's big but people don't really seem to be keen on like going to all kinds of meetups or at least i haven't found the good ones maybe maybe that's the case but uh one thing that i can tell is uh, i guess uh, peter remembers um last year i wanted to I wanted to organize um, a global day of code retreat in in Sydney, and um, it was I guess it was maybe a bit late, but I think I started like two months in, um, and in the end we got like two signups, and so you we are like okay that's not enough to actually sponsor the the whole room and everything, and so we cancelled it. Yeah, well that's clear somehow, right? Everybody's sitting in a plane and traveling to Vienna to go to Peter's organized code retreat i guess that's the reason yeah maybe yeah i would like to see that but when we talk <laughs> about code retreat uh, it looks really good for for vienna this time we might be able uh, to do friday and saturday because it's like 10 year anniversary of code retreat and uh, the global organizers asked uh, so you could do it on Friday or Saturday. So we'd like to uh, do both days. And we might have sponsors for two different international uh, facilitators, like cool. one on Friday, one on Saturday. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. So that's, uh, that's probably a really cool experience. And maybe some people will have time both days. At least I would have time. So that's uh, the best code suite ever. Sounds very nice. I'm jealous I, that I can't join. So yeah, you try it again in, in, in yeah, Sydney this yeah, year? Yeah, try it again Thomas? because you will know more people now, right? So I think Yeah, I'll probably try again and um, just start organizing earlier and put the word out there earlier so that, um, yeah. There was actually one in Melbourne and they said that they uh, they got kind of overrun. They had like over 40 signups. Really? Um, I, I don't actually know how many people turned up. Because the organizer, uh, she wrote me that uh, the tip you gave me about um, charging a small fee up front and refunding it if people show up was very smart and they didn't do that. So I don't know how many actually showed up of those 40 signups. Mm. But they had like two different rooms and all this kind of stuff set up. Yeah. I think this, this tip, you always have to do this, right? Otherwise, you will end up with, I don't know, 30% of the people which signed mm -hmm. up. You see this massively, I think, now in the, in the meetup scene in Vienna. Um, so it's it's. I think it was about 60-70% back then. Now it's really around a quarter, maybe. It's amazing. 
Well, but you, you said there's not not a huge community in Sydney. I'm a little bit disappointed, actually. Honestly, I thought there there must be a huge crowd, which is which is. I mean, I was in London the other day, and and this is for me really the the ultimate community. They have, I think, five meetups each day. Um, this was really this was really amazing. So um, Vienna is already very noisy, I think, when it comes to meetups. But but London is really on a different level, and I thought maybe Sydney is also somewhere there. So do you know the mm. reasons why people don't um, like to invest so much um, of their free time into meetups and community stuff? Um, I, no, I honestly don't know. So there's there's plenty of meetups going on um, outside of software engineering. So like you can do you can do all kinds of stuff. I mean, in the end, there's five million people living in Sydney. So mm -hmm. some of them some of them must uh, want to do something at some point. Um, and yeah, I, I I don't really understand because there's like Atlassian has headquarters in Sydney, right? Google Maps is developed in Sydney, so there would be plenty of developers around. But um, yeah. I didn't. I, I I tried to join all the uh, software engineering related meetups um, and um, uh, see what they're doing, but there's not that many events created. So even the Rust one only is once per quarter because they don't get enough talks. Um, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. In Vienna, they have really uh, waiting lists already for talks, some meetups. Have you also been to the JavaScript um, community? Because I mean, uh, even if you don't don't like it um, too much, I mean, they are really those which usually have most of the people, and people are mostly motivated to go there. So, have you have you an insight about this React, Angular, uh, JavaScript itself? Something I don't like have this? an insight on that. I maybe wanna point out that I. Don't dislike JavaScript per se. <laughs> so okay, then I, re I, I really, I really so like yeah. React. You should know so, that. So. so you're careful not to get like flamed on Twitter now, right? It's, uh, JavaScript <laughs> yeah, is yeah. cool. It's awesome. WebAssembly is <laughs> cool and awesome. Uh, Go is cool and awesome, and it is. Uh, yeah. And Rust is also very cool and awesome. <laughs> no, really. Huh? So why should we still do Java? Uh, because it's cool and awesome with the project. <laughs> uh, I just learned that there is uh, an upcoming project that uh, uses uh, will have coroutines in Java, but not soon, but uh, someday. So, um, yeah, so that was an awesome episode again. So, David, would, should we sum up? Well, I think um, you summed it up already very good with, with an awesome episode. I think it was really nice to have you, Thomas. Thank you again thank you. For, for joining us here. Yes, and thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, definitely again if you want. Um, and anyway, we have another episode about blockchain um, for, for this month. So we will hear a little bit more about your job, I guess. So we're looking forward to this also. So see you next month when we will again team up over another cup of delicious developer Milosh.